Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's October 18th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'm in Soho again and scattered around the country. Uh, Andrew Egger of the Weekly Standard and our resident number cruncher, David Byler. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Thanks for having us, Charlie. I want to start off by, by just clarifying something because I actually thought I was misquoted in the paper uh, today. I, I, re- I really did. Uh, the, the the Guardian, for for whatever reason, has done a piece about Ann Coulter. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. <laughs> and it went through various things that people have said about her, including the allegation that I had once called her Trump's Aryan witch enforcer. And I looked at that, and I said, Charlie Sykes, 2016. And I'm thinking, when did I ever call Ann Coulter? Trump's Aryan witch enforcer. I mean, that's, that's a know, lot. That's harsh. I mean, that's harsh for me, you know. So um, I did what anybody would do under those circumstances, which is I Googled the phrase. And sure enough, in January of 2016, I did tweet out that she was Trump's Aryan witch enforcer. But the interesting thing about it was the context. The, back then, this shows you how much the world has changed. Back then, Nikki Haley, who was still governor of of South Carolina, had pushed back on Donald Trump, you know, saying that we don't necessarily need to listen to the loudest voices in the room and saying that we needed to be more uh, welcoming of immigrants in this country, you know, being the child of immigrants herself. And Ann Coulter had had blasted her saying that Donald Trump should deport Nikki Haley. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and and that's what so I tweeted in sort of in reaction to Ann Coulter's attack on Nikki Haley that she was acting as Trump's uh, Aryan witch enforcer. But it was it's sort of the context boy, you realize, you know, how you could not have imagined the world we live in now. <laughs> Back in January 2016. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, speaking of the world that we live in now. We are 19 days from the, the midterm elections, and David, you have been tracking uh, the this, the Senate uh, the, the Senate prospects. Uh, you have a piece up today about uh, how to watch the House of Representatives race. But let's let's go back to the swing seat model. Uh, you have all along been predicting that there was a a rather strong percentage chance of Republicans to hold on and perhaps even expand their majority in the Senate. As of right now, what does your swing seat model say? Right. So right now, the latest read is that Republicans have about an 80 percent chance of holding on to the Senate. So that's not a certainty, but that is a, a pretty substantial advantage. Just and that's in, up. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's up from where it was before. Just like some context, if you're rolling, you know, a six sided die and your, your chances of getting anything between one through five is about 83%. So it's a little bit under that. So Democrats still have a chance. It's, you know, better than the chance of rolling a six, but only by a couple percentage points. So it really is a significant Republican advantage here. Right now, it thinks that the most likely outcome is 51 seats for the Republican. That's sort of the median projection of the thousands of projections that it runs daily. And the Average projections is 51.7 seats. So probably the best way to think about it is just between 51 to 52 seats is the sort of mean projection. But you really could have an outcome anywhere between sort of a thin margin of Democratic control and all the way up to, you know, 55, 56 Republican seats if they have a really good night. 
Yeah, I mean, this is something that I'm not sure that the conventional wisdom has uh, has really fully taken on board yet. The possibility of big Republican gains in the in the Senate in a year in which uh, most of the narrative has been the blue wave. Um, if I understand your uh, your results running the simulations, Republicans would win at least 54 seats in 20 percent of the simulations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's actually recently gone up to 55. But yeah, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Okay, so we have 55 seats. So what what is broken? My my sense is that a lot of these states that that Republicans, I'm sorry, the Democrats thought that were in play um, may not be in in play, and then suddenly a lot of their incumbents appear to be highly um, uh, high, highly vulnerable. I mean, let's let's start with uh, Heidi Heitkamp, uh, dead woman walking at this point. Well, a lot of the data that we have really points strongly in favor of Kramer, her Republican opponent. You've had a couple polls out of the state. They're a little bit data now, but we've had a couple polls out of the state that showed him with a lead in the low double digits. Candidates usually just don't come back from that sort of a mm -hmm. deficit. Um, the model looks at that kind of polling and says, yeah, this isn't over over. There's still, you know, a 10 to 15 percent chance of a polling error plus a height camp comeback right. and, you know, things along those lines. But really, that one, according to, you know, the way that I model this out is uh, pretty strongly for the Republicans, though not guaranteed. And at the same time, we've seen really good Republican polls out of Texas, where you've had Cruz mm -hmm. with kind of a mid to high single digit lead in a couple different uh, reputable polls. You've had um, Tennessee, uh, you've had some good polls for Blackburn there. It's been a little more varied for Blackburn. Sometimes it's, you know, a low single digit, uh, lead. Sometimes you have, you know, the Sienna upshot poll that has a 14 point lead for, her. but really the increase in Republican probability in those States has driven up the overall Republican control probability by quite a bit over sort of the last month. Okay, let's talk about Arizona and Nevada. Um, uh, where you you had a piece earlier about uh, you know Arizona, we've 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 talked about this. Uh, mm -hmm. There's been a lot of speculation that this was going to be a a prime both both Nevada and Arizona prime Democratic pickups, but th that seems a lot less clear right now. Yeah, th a this lot. is sort of the. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good observation because this is sort of the undercovered other side, which is that uh, not only are Republicans sort of solidifying in some of the these redder states like Tennessee, Texas, uh, North Dakota, Democrats are slipping a little bit compared to what we might expect in some of the, these other states. So right now, the model thinks that Nevada is a pure toss-up. It's got a 53% win probability for Rosen, the Democrat, which is basically indistinguishable from a coin flip when we're, you know, talking about one election in one state coming up in, you know, a couple of weeks. That's, and, that's and, that was, and that was regarded as kind of a that was kind of regarded as a gimme for the Democrats early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a it's an interesting thing. Uh, Teller seems to have ran a much better campaign than I think many were expected. He's shown a lot more overall strength. He's sort of been swinging hard and uh, some of his ads against uh, Rosen. And it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of come out of the woodwork as being an an actual true toss-up state. It's it's sort of got written off earlier in the campaign season, but it it's genuinely competitive. Okay, tell me about Arizona, because I'm seeing a lot on social media about uh, about the, the Democratic nominee, Cinema, who, had again, had been favored for some time over Martha McSally. But uh, a lot of old stuff coming back to haunt her about uh, suggesting that maybe people join the Taliban and some of her anti-war um, activism. 
is 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 that flipping that race? Is is that is that one of those races where uh, McSally has the momentum? So this race, what what I think is so interesting about this race is what you're describing. There's there's kind of a, a rush of all these different stories. There's the comments that you talked about. There's uh, a tape of her referring to her state as the quote unquote meth lab of democracy, uh, which, you know, is a line she pulled from the daily show and she was trying to make a joke, but it (laughs) comes off really badly when you call the state that you're running for Senate in a, uh, you know, meth lab of democracy anyways. So she's had all these recent, uh, really pretty rough news stories, but before that, is when you've seen sort of an increase in McSally's win probability. So um, before she made any of those comments, uh, you know, in the last couple months beforehand, you saw McSally creeping up steadily over time and in the end, doubling her win probability, going from uh, about 15% in our model all the way up to uh, roughly 35%. So uh, I think a couple things are happening there. One is that you have Republican sort of unification behind McSally. Uh, She was previously uh, running in this primary where she kind of had a two front war where on one hand she was trying to run against cinema. But on the other hand, she was trying to put away uh, Kelly Ward and Joe Arpaio, both of whom would have been extremely problematic uh, general election candidates. Um, So she she won that primary. And then a lot of the Republicans in the state sort of got behind her. But, you know, it's it's been a, a sort of gradual change. Now, cinema's still favored both in the polls and the model in this. Uh, you know, she's still two to one favorite. She often gets, uh, you know, low single digit leads in polls. But that's a, a serious change from sort of the summer months when cinema had high single digit leads in a whole variety of polls and really did look pretty solid for taking that seat. Okay, I want to talk about two of the other squishy seats, and then I want to talk about your more your most controversial model, uh, and you know what that is. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about West West Virginia and Indiana. You have Democratic incumbents in, in pretty substantially red states. <laughs> West Virginia being extremely. You still um, have the uh, have have the Democrats as uh, as slight as slight favorites to hold those seats. Yeah, so I would say that Indiana is, depending on how you, you know, delineate your categories, somewhere between the, somewhere in the leans, maybe into the likely Democratic category, but I would say leans. And, you know, you you don't get as much polling in Indiana uh, because the state laws are a little bit restrictive and what polls are allowed and all of that. Um, but you don't get as much polling in Indiana. But the polling we have seen has often showed Donnelly, the uh, Democratic incumbent, with sort of a low to mid single digit lead. Uh, and that's worth something. And if you look at Donnelly's campaign ads, uh, you see him trying to take conservative positions, trying to sort of distance himself from the Democratic brand without, you know, de-energizing the base that he has in the state. And so you have that state as in play, uh, but just slightly less in play, I guess I would say, than than Arizona. So actually competitive. And in West Virginia, you have a little bit of a different situation. We have uh, right now about an 85 percent win probability Mm. for Joe Manchin. 
And Joe Manchin's just an institution in the state. It's a it's a highly uh, sort of Trumpy state, both politically and demographically. Um, it's my home state, actually, so I can I can mm. talk with uh, a lot of personal familiarity about West Virginia. But he's had these high single digit, sometimes low double digit wins in all of the uh, or in nearly all of the nonpartisan polls. You have occasionally a couple partisan polls, you know, pushed out there that say something different, but. Oftentimes, these polls that are done for campaign are half polling, half messaging, and then mm-hmm. some part plea for funding. So I, I don't put those in the model. I don't really pay much attention to those uh, unless I'm trying to figure out sort of what the campaigns themselves are thinking in the area that, that they are trying to build. So, again, it's an outside chance of a Morrissey win in West Virginia. Um, but right now, West Virginia is sort of the the strongest state for Democrats of all of these states where they have a Democratic incumbent running in a red state. Okay, I, I was actually on a, on a TV show this morning talking about a race that really had not really been on my radar screen. It's on your radar screen. Uh, mm-hmm. Montana, the president is going yeah. back to Montana, and this will be his third or fourth visit to Montana. And, you know, what? there's like 18 total voters in the state of Montana. I'm making that up. Um, <laughs> but but according to this report, uh, the, the spending on the Senate race might top $50 million, which, by the way, I can't figure out how you spend $50 million in Montana. I mean, how much does a television ad in Bozeman or Missoula cost? I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Uh, but uh, John Tester is clearly one of Donald Trump's uh, per- personal favorite targets. He blames him for the whole, you know, Ronnie Jackson implosion, and they're going to, you know, link the, the Kavanaugh thing. So you still have Tester as favored, but that's a state that Donald Trump won by 20 points. So this is a state where I would really like to see some more polling. We don't have a ton of recent polling in, uh, actually in a lot of these states, and that's something else we can talk about if you want. But this is a state where I'd like to see uh, more polling because right the, the polling that we do have suggests that the Republican candidate has about a 20% win probability. Again, tester advantage, but not safe, not a race that you can, you know, that either side can uh, stop spending in or stop thinking about or something along those lines. And, you know, John Tester stylistically fits the state well. If I recall correctly, Very he so. has a farm. He, uh, I think he only has seven fingers because he lost a few of them in a uh, accident, you know, using heavy machinery. Uh, so Trump's going to try to hit him uh, for a number of these different things because, you know, Tester is a Democrat who's taking Democratic votes. Um, and I wouldn't say that Tester is quite as strong as Joe Manchin, but he is closer to the Manchin category than, say, the Claire McCaskill category, um, McCaskill, who just kind of runs as a generic And, and I want to yeah. get to that in, in, a, in a moment here. You know, what's interesting about that race, of course, is that John Tester is trying to localize it, make it a Montana mm-hmm. race, whereas Donald Trump is trying to nationalize that race, basically saying it's not about John Tester, it's about uh, Chuck Schumer, it's about Nancy Pelosi, it's about uh, it's about Bernie Sanders. But, okay, I want to get to McCaskill in, in a moment and also talk about nightmare scenarios for uh, Democrats and for Republicans. But the most controversial call in your model is Florida. Florida. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you have that as deep blue. Um, t- tell me how the, is, is, is the storm, is, is, is the hurricane affecting this dynamic with, with, with Rick Scott and, and, uh, and Gillen? Right. So we haven't had a ton of post hurricane polling. I think it would be interesting to get more of that and see what happens because in, uh, in the past sort of two years, we've seen 
good reactions to Scott's governance during hurricanes. Uh, a lot of Floridians think that he does a good job in these situations, and you see upticks in his approval ratings. You see uh, really just the public in Florida responding well to Rick Scott in times of disaster. So I would be interested in seeing more of that. Florida, it's it's just a, it's a weird situation. We've been getting a ton of polls in Texas, some polls in like Tennessee, but uh, you know, a poll in Nevada or Arizona too, but just not as many in Florida or Missouri or these states where we saw, you know, a boatload of polls earlier in the cycle. So I I would want to actually see where the trend goes. But really, the, the reason that this state is as blue as it is in the model is because it invokes fundamentals as well as polling. It's trying to split the difference between the fact that this race, you know, quote unquote, should, if you, you know, believe the fundals are th- fundamentals are a thing that, you know, should guide the race. You you should expect a Democratic incumbent in a swingish state in a blue year to win handily. It's what's happening in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Uh, but it's not what's happening in Florida. The polls show a close race. So the kind of Blueness that gives Scott a, you know, still solid chance, but puts him at a really pretty big disadvantage. It's kind of the model's attempt to split the difference between the two. So, you know, my gut says that this race is, you know, less democratic than what the model says, but models are about checking your intuition and trying to, you know, give you something that isn't your gut. If it, if it, if all these numbers came out exactly the way that I would have expected them to do to come out beforehand, it would have been useless to build the thing. You know, I I could have just, I could have just put my guesses up online and that would have been that. Right. And there's a, like the rest of us do. That's right. You'd be like all the rest of us. So if if, if you, if you're a Democrat, your, 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 your fantasy night, your, your best case scenario is that you flip, you tell me if I'm wrong about this, you flip Arizona, you flip Nevada, you flip Tennessee, and then you hold serve, um, everywhere else. Now you probably, you know, even, even then you, you know, you, you're going to lose probably in, uh, in, in, in North Dakota, but for the Democrats, the nightmare scenario looks something like you, you, you don't flip any of those seats. You lose Heidi Hyde Camp. Uh, you uh, you you know lose places like Florida, or you lose uh, uh, Donnelly in Indiana, and of course, then comes down maybe you know to M- Missouri. You know, we really want a nightmare. Scenario. But now, if you really really want a nightmare scenario, you flip New Jersey, you flip Menendez, which you don't think is going to happen. But but let's talk about Missouri because Claire McCaskill seems to be you know a candidate who every cycle looks like she is the most vulnerable, hanging on by a thread, and yet somehow manages to pull it out. But she's in real clear trouble. And Andrew Egger, you have been doing some in-depth reporting on in, on M- Missouri. Where are we at now? Yeah, well, Missouri's kind of my, my has been my pet race. It's, it's my home state, uh, and uh, and I've, I've been following it for the past, you know, a few months. It's definitely still a toss-up, definitely still uh, you know, anybody's ball game. There's, we, we talked a little bit on the podcast yesterday about some of the personal attacks that have been mm-hmm. uh, going back and forth between McCaskill and Holly. One interesting thing that's happened just this this past week is uh, is Project Veritas, uh, James O'Keefe's sort of renegade, uh, quote unquote, journalism operation where they go undercover for these these big sting operations. Uh, they they set up shop in Missouri over the past couple months apparently, and they uh, they sort of embedded with Clear McCaskill campaign uh, and have been releasing a bunch of these a bunch of these you know sting videos uh, which which you know purport to show 
that McCaskill is, you know, uh, essentially way more of a liberal than she portrays herself to be in in advertising and things like that. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of boring stuff on the whole, given that, um, you, or fr- from the perspective of you know people in Washington basically being like, well, yeah, I mean, she's a Democrat. She votes like a Democrat. She's going to vote like a Democrat since that's what Democrats in the Senate do. That's kind of how the Senate works. You almost always are going to follow party leadership. Um, but it, it, it does, I think, have the possibility of, you know, shifting some things around in, in Missouri, this sort of thing, because what, what the videos show is essentially just various sort of low level mooks on McCaskill's campaign staff, basically just copping to all of it, basically just saying, you know, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, she's, she is ideologically similar to Barack Obama. They get one of one of the staffers to say that, you know, she supports more stringent gun control regulation. She supports, you know, uh, uh, ready access to abortion. Um, but but she can't come out and publicly say these things because, you know, Missouri's a, a tough state and she needs those votes. And that's what's damaging is is but she has saying, voted. She has voted for the uh, assault weapon ban, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's 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 part of the reason why it's kind of, you know, lame and prosaic compared to some of the other stuff O'Keefe has pulled in the past. Um, but I, I think what's what's damaging isn't, you know, voters, you know, being informed for the very first time ever that she's going to vote with Democrats on on social issues or that she's going to vote with Democrats on guns. It's this sort of ad, it's this sort of admission that there is that strategic element to it, that she, that she's sort of like deliberately portraying herself as more of a moderate than than she is. I mean, it just looks kind of bad for to have her staff on video admitting that. And that's not and, and I, I actually wrote a piece about this that just went up today, basically saying, you know, obviously, that's not just a McCaskill thing. You know, every mm-hmm. politician who's trying to win these tough races in these, you know, in, in, in states that lean the other way, whether a Republican or a Democrat, are always gonna gonna make this move. That it's not about the national party, that it's about them and their, you know, good judgment and their willingness to, you know, go solve problems. Um, McCaskill's just the one who happens to have had this dirty laundry aired a couple of weeks before the election. So it's kind of unfortunate for her. It is I, the I, sausage making. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean exactly. you, we, we all know you do it, but you just don't want to be the one who's caught on camera admitting it. Yeah, 100 percent. So, uh, you know, it's it, it is what it is. You know, you, you can you can love James O'Keefe or hate him. He's obviously done a lot of unsavory things in the past. Yeah. Uh this uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't appear there's anything deceptive going on here. Obviously, well, let, they're let me, playing it let up me, sensationally. Let me ask you about that. This is what's always interesting now in in, in politics and media. How, how is this playing in Missouri? How is this information being disseminated? For, you know, are the mainstream newspapers, television stations, are they going with this? Is this being treated like a big story, or is this being treated like a James O'Keefe gotcha? I mean, I, to, does it, does the average you, to the extent there are swing voters, are they hearing this story? Yeah. So here, here is here is the way the story is playing when it comes to actual media coverage. Is that uh, the McCaskill campaign? Uh, it has has reacted to it in in what is, in my opinion, sort of a, a strange and and foolish way, which is to say. Uh, that that James O'Keefe has committed fraud against them by by sort of falsely embedding, and that Holly, who is the attorney general of the state, ought to investigate them for fraud. And and she's trying to sort of flip the script and say that what this story actually reveals is that Holly is not a good attorney general. He's not doing his current job correctly because otherwise, mm-hmm. why would mm-hmm. why would his campaign be promoting these these videos? Why would they be? Uh, you know, essentially, like what isn't this a sort of a, a tacit endorsement of criminal behavior? And I don't know that the the sort of 
fraud law in Missouri well enough to know whether or not that's a good argument. Uh, I, I obviously, uh, you know, left-leaning press uh, is is playing it off as essentially no big deal. The uh, there, there's the left-leaning alt-weekly paper in my hometown of St. Louis, the Riverfront Times, uh, had a pretty funny article, basically just saying like. You know, James O'Keefe goes deep undercover to discover that Claire McCaskill's a Democrat, and she, I mean that's essentially what he, what he discovered is like, yeah, she's a Democrat and she votes like a Democrat. But the fact that she's a Democrat who votes like a Democrat is a thorny issue for McCaskill in this election. So it just it's just sort of like a silly, uh, you know, on on the one hand, sort of like a silly furor, but on the other hand, you know, uh, sort of cuts to the the chase of why this is such a tough campaign for McCaskill to be running this year. Yeah, you never know how it actually cuts in the in the in, in the end. Okay, I want to uh, now shift uh, to the House of Representatives. And David, you have a piece up about, uh, you know, the race to 216. Um, and I want to get to that in just a moment. But first, the Daily Standard podcast is brought to you today by, this seems so appropriate, Calm. We have partnered with the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Calm is something you download onto your phone, you download onto your, your, your tablet. It gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, more mindful life. If you head to calm.com slash standard, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programming, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, focus, and relationships, including a brand new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit, I was very, very skeptical of this, but uh, th this is really a first-rate operation. They, they've actually gotten some really talented readers to to read these stories and these meditations. I mean, it is really the, – the quality is 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 remarkable. And, and, and frankly, if the, in these times, this seems – useful. So for a limited time, Daily Standard listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. You can get started today at calm.com slash standard. That is calm.com slash standard. And maybe we should have everybody that's on the on the podcast to have to like spend 15 yeah, minutes right, just right. being mindful. You know, hey, I mean, hey, there, there are certain people, you know, in the Weekly Standard who I think could use some breathing <laughs> at bedtime. I mean, look, if, if you have to choose between Scotch and Ambien and one of their bedtime stories, I'm saying, OK, go with the bedtime story and the and the Scotch. Right, right. Leave the Ambien aside. You know, you don't necessarily need the Ambien. Yeah. Ambien, you'll be writing crazy stuff. Right. OK, before, so Charlie, before yes. we before we. Uh, dash over to the house. Can I interject one quick, yeah. more Senate-related comment? One one thing that I was, was just occurring to me as you guys were, were were talking about the model is obviously you know the the big storyline is that Republicans are likely to maintain, uh, but I think that 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 number uh, that that David you were talking about the fifty one point seven uh, that's whether it's fifty one seats or fifty two seats that Republicans keep in the Senate is actually going to be pretty mm. important because. Uh, you know what? What we've seen over the past couple of years is, you know, a lot of a lot of these uh, close votes in the Senate that end up getting hamstrung by that sort of four-man moderate block of uh, John McCain, Jeff Flake, 
Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. Obviously, Flake is retiring. John McCain passed away this past year, which leaves those two moderate senators of Murkowski and Collins. If Republicans manage, you know, to snag 52 seats, that's a, you know, that's a majority even without Collins and Murkowski. If they if they get 51, you know, they they need at least one of those two to do anything. Obviously, it's a it's sort of a moot point if uh, if Republicans don't manage to keep the House, which we're about to talk about. But I I just think it's interesting that 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 51 and 52 are the most likely two outcomes at this point. That well, could end and, up being well, that's, and, and, and it could it could matter and it could matter for Supreme Court nominees as well. And of course, right. we don't we don't know where Mitt Romney falls in all of this or you know what what role he intends to play. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. I totally agree, Andrew. And I'd, I'd push it even a little bit further that the probability of getting to 53 or 54 also matters for a slightly different reason, which is that the 2020 Senate map is uh, significantly less favorable for Republicans than the 2018 Senate map. So if Republicans want to try to think in any sort of a long term way, they're going to be crossing their fingers for 52, 53, 54 instead of 51, because if it's this narrow margin, then there's, you know, there's a possibility that they sustain losses in 2020. And then, you know, the Senate majority is in real jeopardy or maybe only even there for a few two year terms. All right, this is a good time to flip to to the House because it strikes me is that uh, these narratives are very, very different from one another. And, and on election night, there's going to be two really competing realities that uh, if, in fact, the Republicans lose the House but pick up seats in the Senate, it's sort of like, you know, pick which trend you want to go to. I saw, David, a very interesting analysis. I think it was some political uh, operatives talking or pollsters uh, in The New York Times saying that, Maybe the way to think of this election in the House is less of a wave than a, uh, than like a cyclone, that it will touch down in certain areas of the country, but not other areas of the country. In other words, uh, red areas are going to get redder, blue areas are going to get bluer. And so that map the day after the election is going to be more starkly divided than ever before. But let's talk about this, uh, that while Republican uh, prospects in the Senate, I think, are looking much, much better what are you seeing right now in the House? Right. So in the House, you see kind of a little bit of stasis. You see some different trends sort of pushing against each other. You see uh, Democrats getting some uh, really excellent fundraising numbers. You see some sort huge of fundraising numbers. Yeah, Did they one billion dollars we found out yesterday? Well, it's 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 really big, the totals. And the thing that's interesting about the fundraising numbers is not just uh, how much they are, but it's also where they are. Sometimes you get races that, you know, are sort of more likely or more solidly Republican and you suddenly see a Democratic fundraising total there and it sort of makes your eyebrows go up and makes you wonder like, okay, what would that race look like if we pulled it? Would it be, you know, exactly what we'd be expected? Would it be more than we expected? Would it be the sort of thing where, you know, Democrats manage to uh, reach sort of into deep red territory and catch a couple of sort of weird oddball upsets? So you've got indicators like that. You've got the generic ballot where Democrats still have uh, a really large lead. In some cases, you have uh, polling data that suggests some sort of polarization, some Republicans posting decent numbers. If you look at the New York Times uh, live polling in some of these mm -hmm. competitive districts, but overall, these things kind of shake out to a similar place that it's been for most of the cycle right now. Uh, 538's forecast says that there's an 84% probability that Democrats control the House. So, you know, 
in the neighborhood of the of the probability that Republicans control the Senate. So it's it's and it's an, it's an interesting thing um, just because of figuring out where the battleground is is. I don't know. Just kind of an interesting question with this whole, well, whole house the, situation. The 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 Senate, the, the the fundamental dynamic of the Senate is that you're you're fighting many of these battles in Trump country, in in areas mm-hmm. that in states that Donald Trump won back in 2016. In the House of Representatives, Republicans are defending a lot of turf that Hillary Clinton won. So you know, for example, if you're talking about some seats in Pennsylvania or some seats in Missouri, I mean, I mean Missouri, Minnesota, or California, you know, the the Environment is very, very different. So, um, how, what, what? Give, give me your sense. You, you, you don't, you don't have a projection. You're not projecting uh, the percentages in, in that in the House of Representatives. Right. But it strikes me that um, that a lot of the trends that are helping Republicans in the Senate don't necessarily help them in the House. I think that's exactly right. Uh, you could argue it's always hard for just, you know, wonky theoretical and you could even call it philosophical reasons to really know what causes, you know, different movements in the polls. But you really could argue that some sort of late game polarization plus Brett Kavanaugh plus a few other stories uh, really helped Kramer in North Dakota and kind of helped mm-hmm. shore up the Republicans in some of these really red states. But it's not looking like it's having the exact same states in really sort of the uh, kind of middle battleground. So what I found in um, a piece that just went up on Thursday morning about uh you know, the overall battle for the House, I kind of mapped every district out onto this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. giant thing that kind of looks like a crazy Connect Four board, uh, except it has 435 pieces in it and all these things. Anyways, what I found was that a lot of the battleground is uh, Republicans in blue districts, mm-hmm. but even more of the battleground, uh, or a really, really huge piece of it is in districts where there's no incumbent or a Republican incumbent. And the district is, you know, maybe to the right of the country if you look at both 2012 and 2016, but not so far to the right that it's out of question. So I wouldn't call all these districts necessarily Trump country because there's they're diverse demographically. Um, you have, you know, main second mm-hmm. district, which is uh, you could argue more Trumpier demographically and, you know, um, other more suburbanish districts. There's a ton of those, actually. Uh, other more suburbanish districts that are, you know, more well-educated, more sort of uh, white collar places that are also the battleground. And so you've got this this mix where it's a mix politically and where there's a lot of sort of suburban battlegrounds, but even it's a mixed demographic. It's hard to characterize sort of the battleground in the House as just one thing. It's this big cluster in the sort of center, a little bit center left, but a lot center right of the sort of house map, if that makes sense. You, so the, the, one of the interesting questions that, that you get asked is, uh, so is, uh, you know, Donald Trump has made this all about him. You know, he, even though he says he's not to blame if, if, they, if the Republicans lose the House majority, but it, but it is clearly, he's, he's trying to turn this into a referendum um, about him. And so the question is, is he helping or is he hurting? And I think there's two different answers there, depending on where you go, that, that yeah, you know, he might turn out more Republican voters in, in, deep, in deep red states, but, but he's also, I'm guessing, uh, going to be mobilizing voters on the other side, mobilizing Democratic voters. And let me just throw something. I, it was uh, on a panel with uh, 
Eddie Glaude from from Princeton, who mm-hmm. um, b- basically is arguing that that yeah, the, I mean, the Kavanaugh effect is is going to mobilize uh, conservatives, but he talks about also the mobilization of what he calls the unlikely voters, voters who you know do not have a propensity for voting in off year elections. This would be members of minority groups, uh, uh, young younger people, more disaffected people who will be inspired to turn out and therefore will actually change the electorate. And of course, Democrats are testing this theory in places like Georgia. Can you change the actual you know, uh, shape and look of the electorate this this, this year? Do, are, polling, are, are you picking up any indication that that is happening? And is that possibly one of the things that will or is challenging pollsters? I mean, every poll is based on a turnout model. Is there any sense that that turnout model might change because of the Trump effect? Right. So this is a really good question. I think there's a couple important points to try to kind of untangle with it. So first, in midterm midterm elections, you really can change the makeup of the electorate. Turnout is lower. And if your party does not have the presidency, you can really get, you know, uh, juiced up turnout on your side that helps in a way that's different from a presidential election where, yeah, turnout does matter, and uh, but we have a, a better sense of who's going to vote in a presidential election before it happens, if, if that makes sense. You can get these differential turnouts in midterms between different groups. I would pinpoint some of these uh, sort of college-educated voters, uh, many of whom are white, as one of the important groups to watch turnout and vote share for. It's a group that Democrats have been polling very well with. And the reason that I would watch it is because of how the districts are drawn. A lot of the battleground districts uh, are districts with a lot of college-educated voters, white voters, so on and so forth. Um, But a lot of these other Democratic groups that are uh, talked about a lot in presidential cycles are actually sort of clustered into relatively few congressional districts. You can argue about the exact mix of how much that is by, you know, by design to make sure that uh, various populations have good representations in Congress, how much of that is gerrymandering, Mm -hmm. how much of that is just natural clustering of, uh, you know, people drawing small districts within major cities. You you could have a, a big argument about exactly why the House map looks the way it does, but there are just comparatively few competitive districts with a lot of black voters or with a lot of Hispanic voters. Well, that's, and, that's, yeah. that's an interesting point because I mean, I, I, you know, consent when you see the, the, the generic ballot, this is a question I always have on my mind. So say in, in, in Wisconsin, um, Gwen Moore represents, uh, the city of Milwaukee. She's going to get 90% of the vote, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, so how does that average out in terms of the generic ballot? I, as I said, I, I have a feeling that the, the blue districts are going to get much bluer, but they don't actually change the, the congressional makeup? Well, it's 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 a little bit of both, I would say. There's going to be some blue districts where I think, you know, there's the, the roof is going to get blown out be in terms of turnout compared to the last midterm. And, you know, you'll see some eye-popping margins and things like that. But there is a sense in which the generic ballot tells us things about the House race more broadly and does tell us things about some of these toss-up districts. Um, I think that one of the best things you can do when you look at this is try to look at, you know, forecasts that integrate a lot of these things, uh, you know, CNN 538 analyses that 
look at sort of the broad map and try to look at things all at the same time and to look at the mm. district by district polling. Because one thing you have noticed in some of these districts that are a little bit more swingy uh, and that have some amount of Hispanic voters uh, districts in Texas. Uh, I'm specifically thinking of Texas 23 right now, but there's others as well. Um, some of those districts have Republicans actually doing pretty well, uh, partially due to specific candidates in those places, uh, you know, like Carlos Curbelo and Florida, partially yeah. uh, due to just lower Hispanic turnout during midterms. But it's it's kind of a, a multi-piece puzzle. If you, I, I would say that if you want to look at the effect of uh black and Hispanic voters specifically in important midterm races. The first places I would look are governor's races in right. uh, Georgia, in Florida, in Maryland. Democrats are running African-American candidates. And in two of those three races, uh, th there's, you know, very, very uh, close uh, competition, according to the polls. And I'd also look in Senate races. I'd be uh, interested in... <clears throat> how the polls evolve in Florida specifically is the one that I'm, I'm yeah, thinking yeah. about the most, uh, especially with Andrew Gillum running on the governor's side. How does that affect things on the Senate side with Nelson versus Scott sort of on the same ballot? Um, you could also talk about Nevada and Arizona with Hispanic voters. But if, if that's uh, if you're interested in sort of how black and Hispanic voters are shaping the midterms, I wouldn't necessarily look at the House first. I would look right. at governors and Senate. No, I think, I think that's a good take. So, Andrew. What's your hot take for the day? Charlie, I've given you all the takes I have. Come on, were no, any I, of those good enough for you? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, though they're, they're very good. There's, 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 there's two things up on the Weekly Standard site that I really uh, want to uh, advise people to read. Uh, Adam, Adam Rubenstein has a piece about uh, Steve King, uh, the most deplorable members of, member of Congress. Uh, the this the bizarre story of his endorsement of this uh, neo-Nazi candidate for mayor of Toronto. I mean, like, why he would be involved at all? This woman named yeah, Faith Goldie, extremely Goldie. high profile mayoral race. In Toronto, uh, yeah. Well, I, and the woman is—I mean, I, this, this is part of the the frustration of our time to say, with, you know, Faith Goldie is is a white nationalist who flirts with Nazi. I mean, it's like, no, 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 not not just one of the deplorables. I mean, she is out there. She was fired from her right wing, you know, the this, the job she had before because she insisted on going on the podcast for the Daily Stormer. This is somebody who has uttered the fourteen words, which were you know popularized by a you know flat out. You know, pro-Nazi. I think the guy that who actually was a, a convicted murderer who murdered a a a, a prominent uh, Jewish individual, and, and 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 yet you have conservatives in this country who've decided that because she hates immigration, we're going to give her shout-outs. But but Steve King, who has become more and more unhinged in his uh, you know racial politics, goes out of his way to tweet the endorsement, and as far as I can see, there has not been sufficient blowback. Um, and, and, and how this plays in Iowa, I have no idea. The other piece I would strongly advise uh, people to, uh, to look at it. Jonathan last has a, has a really great piece about, uh, never Trumpers and always Trumpers. I don't agree with everything in the piece, but I agree with an awful lot of it. And it's, it's written from, and this is very unusual, uh, very fair minded analysis of why never Trumpers are from Venus and always Trumpers are from Mars. And I, and I think it gives an an honest uh, look at the at, at the motivations on both sides and 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 the risks that both sides are are, are taking there. So these are these are pieces that I think uh, you know ought to be read and ought to be thought about and uh, and have wider dissemination, including um, 
the the problem that Republicans really I mean. I, I you know I and I I think Republicans have a Steve King problem. They're they're going to have to cope with it sooner or later. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. He's you know it's obviously for the best that you know more Republicans aren't behaving like that. But you know it's the the fact that he is a member of Congress who's currently popping off on all these things without facing much, you know, active blowback from other, you know, other Republicans in Congress is, is sort of disturbing. Um, about on the issue of, of Jonathan Last's piece, uh, which which I agree is extremely good, you all, you all should go read it. But one thing that I found really interesting about it was it, it sort of, um, first of all, it's, it's written in extremely good faith. I mean, it, it attributes, mm-hmm. you know, good, good uh, motivations, or at least, you know, reasonable motivations to why both the pro-Trumpers and the anti-Trumpers came down in the Republican Party came down on the side that they did. Um, and it's illuminating in that way. I also like it sort of subverts or maybe inverts the format of uh, the Michael Anton piece that was so influential in the 2016 election when he talked about how that was the Flight 93 election, where it was, you know, we were sort of on a collision course with disaster. Uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, a Hillary Clinton presidency would mean sort of the end of the line for for the Republican Party, for conservatism, for all these reasons, court packing and and gerrymandering and other type things. Um, and what 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 Jonathan Last's uh, piece that's up today sort of makes the point is that for for never Trumpers. This was also sort of a flight 93 election. He doesn't actually use that formulation, but it's, it's that's kind of the idea that's there is that and not just this, but but that every election is is in, in a certain sense has the potential to be a flight 93 election because the the sort of norms uh, that have been built up around American politics that sort of protect civility, that protect liberty, that protect you know, the, the sort of positive uh, emergent effects of our democratic Republican process that there is a fragility to those things that that at any time either side has the capacity of sort of shuttling it off uh, in pursuit of more just sort of raw political power and that that that's sort of what we saw with the election of Trump was a certain uh, subset of the party being willing to make that trade because they thought that that the you know the stakes were too high for us to be willing to suffer a short-term loss uh, just for just for the sake of maintaining these sort of like nonpartisan institutions. Well, so it's an interesting take. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely no, would it, encourage it people to check it out. And, and, and I do think, I mean, I, I, I come down on that, uh, on that side, uh, really being concerned about the fragility of our norms and our institutions um, and, 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 and what that means that to realize that, uh, that our system is, uh, is not immune from, from history and that there is going to be, you know, as part of this Faustian bargain, in the Faustian bargain, you've got a lot of stuff that's good. You've got a lot of stuff that you want um, and you can, you can point at them, uh, but then you find out that the price is, is way too high. But it is, as you point out, it, it's written in, uh, you know, attributes good faith, which makes it uh, extremely unusual these days. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me, uh, David and Andrew. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.